Okay, let's take our Bibles uh, this morning and let's turn to the epistle, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 16 through 18. I titled my message today, The Practical Sympathy of Christ, because I believe that in this passage of Scripture is setting up for us really the purpose in the purpose, uh, the reason why Christ actually came to become a man. So far, I've been speaking uh, of the purpose of Jesus becoming a man and the particular purpose for which he died. That is, Jesus' death had a particular purpose in that verse number 9, it says in chapter 2, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, that this passage here is not saying that Jesus died for everyone. The word taste indicates Jesus experienced death. Furthermore, he experienced death in its undiluted bitterness. He encountered everything we would have experienced had we paid our own penalty including his agonizing separation from the Father when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane pleaded with the Father when he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Our text there and here in Hebrews is saying that Jesus did not merely sip the cup of death, but fully drained the cup, undergoing all of death's bitter dread. Jesus took the full extent of what could have been poured out on a person uh, that anyone could have bore. Matter of fact, we could have never bore what he bore, and that is the point, that he was the only one able to accomplish what he accomplished on the cross. And so therefore, Jesus therefore accomplished everything needed to complete and finish our salvation. Now that's a great blessing uh, to me to even think about that. Now, I'd like to just take a few minutes this morning and identify some interpretive issues uh, in our passage. And hopefully that you will maybe develop an appreciation for what it takes to wrestle down uh, a meaning of a passage of Scripture. And, of course, that would be called hermeneutics, the science of interpreting. And we have that problem right here in verse number 16. And I want to just kind of identify it for you. And then I want you to ask this, how would you interpret this? In verse number 16, how would you do it? All right. In our passage, it says in verse number 16 of Hebrews chapter 2. For assuredly, he did not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Now, if you have a Bible and you have any kind of notes by it, you'll notify it'll quickly notify you of uh, the different interpretation there. And so we come to the, that was the numeric standard. The ESV says it like this, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but helps the offspring of Abraham. And then also in the New King James, it says, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. It is only the King James that says this, for verily he took on him the nature of angels, and he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now the reason for this problem is the difficulty of interpreting the Greek term for either to uh, give help or to take on something or to seize something. Now, that, that becomes the difficulty. So there's two interpretations of this passage. One is called 
the classical interpretation, and one is the modern interpretation. And, of course, if you notice that all the new translations take the modern interpretation, and I'll mention what it is quickly in a minute. But I want to deal with first with the classical interpretation and in looking at this verse in verse 16, literally translated, the classical interpretation is he took not angels, but he took the seed of Abraham. Now, it speaks of seizing something, and it rightly asks the question, how did Christ help the descendants of Abraham in the Scriptures? This position says it is clear from the Word of God that this refers to Abraham's seed, singular, as spoken of in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. That means you're going to have to turn there, all right, to Galatians chapter 3, in verse number 16. And I want you to notice, because I'm setting you up for the rest of the passage as we look at what this means here. And in Galatians chapter 3, in verse number 16, it says this. At least the first part of it says, Now... To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now, this was the great principle. The great expectation of the Hebrews was that the Messiah should be the seed of Abraham. In other words, the scripture does not say seeds, plural, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person. The person of Christ. Now, if you look at the second part of verse 16 of Galatians 3, it says, He has said, Not and to seeds as of many, but as of one to thy seed or the seed which is Christ. So, here in Scripture, here is Christ is said to be the seed of Abraham because in Scripture it is so plainly affirmed to be so, but it never says that Christ should be an angel or to take the nature of angels. And of course, he's been spending a lot of time with that. So the bottom line would be this, that this position teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to promise, took to himself the nature of mankind coming from the seed of Abraham, but he did not take the nature of angels, and there is no such thing said anywhere in Scripture that he did so. That's the classical interpretation. The modern interpretation is, as it says in our Scripture right here, they interpret took hold of as help. It says, for assuredly he does give help to angels, but he does not give help to angels, but gives help to the descendants of Abraham. The modern interpretation discards, actually, the most, uh, the classical interpretation because of certain scholars uh, several years ago in favor of the verb meaning to assist or to come to the aid of, um, as many of the more recent translations reflect, I am in favor of the classical interpretation because I believe it follows the flow of the context of the book of Hebrews and our text that we're going to look at this morning. The classical interpretation also helps us to see that by mentioning angels again, that the author of Hebrews was exposing the falsity of certain teaching of those who lived in the Quamram community who held the Essenes, who held and taught that God would send two messiahs, one priestly and one kingly, and the archangel Michael would rule over both of them. See, they had this expectation that an angelic personage would be dominant in the mediation of 
deliverance and the establishment of the awaited messianic kingdom. So this kind of teaching, though, would completely subvert the biblical portrait of Jesus as Messiah. Instead, the messianic leader must be that of mankind. That means he must be a man. Not of angels, for while he is in himself superior to angels, as we already saw in our text, he humbled himself to a position lower than the angels by an act of becoming flesh, submitting himself to being a man and dying on a cross. Of course, that united him to humanity, and it made him possible, made it possible for him. By suffering and death to overthrow the devil and to deliver us from bondage and by his resurrection and exaltation to bring us to glory. So the book of Hebrews then is written to expose and turn upside down this teaching and instead to teach that Christ is supreme over angels and all others. So that, that means that anyone reading this must conclude that they must cease to focus their hope in any sense on the appearance of some angelic deliverer. So he is really going out of his way to do that. So that I believe that the classical interpretation keeps that intact And it tells us that Christ had to become a man. So my first point in verse number 17, and if you look what it says there in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. In other words, he had to take to himself a human nature. And that's the first practical sympathy of Christ in behalf of his children, that the stress is not on help, but the stress is on who he was in his nature because he's going to come up later in our text talking about how he's able to help those who are part of humanity. So now, let's get down this morning to the necessity of Christ becoming a man and having a human nature. It is as... Verse 17 tells us to identify himself completely with mankind, which not only included the assumption of flesh and blood, but all human feelings and sensibilities that a human being could possibly have. He says, therefore, he had to be made, in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So that means this, that Jesus Christ did not take hold of any other nature but the human nature. He became, in other words, fully man and was able now to, as a man, fully take on our nature and by doing this, enter into our condition and specifically the condition of suffering as a human being and our condition of being able to or feeling the power of temptation and often giving in to that temptation because of our weakness and enters into our sorrows as a human being. He could not have done that if he took on any other nature than that of a man. So this really answers the question, how is he able to sympathize with us? Well, he's able to sympathize with us because he became one of us. That's why he's able to do it. Now, that brings us to the next uh, part of verse number 17, because the question is, what is the main purpose of our Lord having a human nature? And here would be, actually, there's a two-purpose two clause spelled out for us right in our text. The first is located in the second part of verse 17, where it says this, so that he may become a merciful and faithful 
high priests in things pertaining to God. So by the incarnation, he becomes a man. But in him becoming a man, he, that meets the prerequisite of him becoming high priest. Now remember, the priest was the one who was the mediator between man and God. And of course, the high priest, there was only one high priest. There was many priests in the priesthood, but there was only a, one appointed high priest, and he officiated on behalf of the people. So, really, looking at it, the first practical sympathy of Christ to take to himself the human nature means that as a man, he became high priest. If he didn't become a man, he could not have become what? High priest. That means he couldn't have been our intercessor, and if he wasn't our intercessor, we would have no one to go to on our behalf to bring us together with God. We would have no one. So, see, it had to be this way. These, these are things that had to happen. Now, let me just take for a minute and just consider maybe some of the things that a high priest is identified to be involved with, at least right here in the book of Hebrews. Look over to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 4 through 6, that a high priest really specifically is called by God. Uh, they cannot be called by anyone else but by God himself, where it says in Hebrews 5, 4, and no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now, we know Aaron, of course, was called by God uh, to be high priest. And look at verse 5. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, you are a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, that Christ was called by the Father to be high priest, even before he came into the world. A second thing we see in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, that, and of course this affirms that he had to be a man, notice what it says in Hebrews 5, 1, for every high priest taken from among who? Among men, it says, is appointed on behalf of men, in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So see, we, the high priest had to be a man because all high priests were men. If Jesus was going to be a high priest and the great high priest, he had to be a man. He couldn't have taken on any other nature than that. And he had to do it so he can enter into everything that he could possibly enter into for our salvation. In fact, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, if you notice over in verse number 7 of that chapter, and if you have one of those sheets that I handed out, if you notice that the tabernacle, a picture of the tabernacle is on that, it's kind of a cutaway. And if you notice in this passage, it kind of describes that there was two sections to the tabernacle. There was the actually the first place, and that's where the altar of incense was, the showbread was, uh, the, the, the lamp was um, right there. And then there was another curtain, and that would be considered the second place, which was the, high, which was the Holy of Holies, in which the high priest entered only once a year. And that he did it alone. He couldn't take anybody with him. He did it alone, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Look at Hebrews 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 7. It says, but into the second, that's the second place, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. In other words, that the high priest had to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin because he was a sinful high priest, Right? And then he had to offer up a sacrifice for the people and then take the blood and bring it into the second place, the holy place, and sprinkle it, sprinkle it over the mercy seat. All right? And he did that once a year, and that was called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. All right? That's the day of covering, the day when the blood covers the people's sins. 
of course, that has direct reference to Christ, right? So remember, in Hebrews, it's talking about Christ fulfilling this picture, fulfilling these types and these shadows and these messages given in uh, the Old Testament. Now, if you look also in Hebrews chapter 5, in verses 1 through 3, it says in verse number 3, it says, and because... And because of it, he is obligated to offer, uh, offer sacrifices for sin as for the people, so also for himself. Now, the thing that's different about Christ in verse number 3 is that he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. His sacrifice was totally offered on behalf of the people. All right? And there's a reason for that. And I'll give you that reason a little later on but there's a reason for that. So, in Scripture, another thing that the high priest did was he interceded for the people. He came again and brought prayers before God in behalf of the people. And if you notice in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, uh, on to verse 28, it says this, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. And then verse 28, for the law appoints men as high priests, who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Very clearly that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, becomes the high priest in behalf of his people. Now, There are two things in Hebrews it says about the high priest, two things that describe the high priest and really does make him quite different than all the other high priests throughout history. And it would be in verse number 17 of Hebrews chapter 2 where it says simply this, that he was the high priest in things pertaining to God, right, where it says that he was a merciful high priest. So Jesus is described first as a merciful high priest. Now, this is where we get the word sympathetic from because it can be translated both ways. Merciful, sympathy, one who has compassion are all woven into this. Now, Jesus is the one who lays all the miseries of his people to heart so he can care for them and then so he can relieve them. That's the point when it talks about the mercies or the sympathies or the compassion of God. And we go to the Old Testament and we find all over the place. The Bible's talking about Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name for God, the Lord. It's usually translated with big letters, Lord, right? He is the merciful one. In fact, in Scripture it says in Exodus, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaim the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, here's that word, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So God is in Scripture considered to be the one who is merciful, the one who is compassionate. Deuteronomy tells us again, it says, for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. See, that becomes very important. You know why? One of the qualifications of high priest was to be compassionate. The only problem was it's really hard to be compassionate when all you're dealing with is the people's sin. It just weighs you down. See, Jesus was able to deal with that part of it. In fact, if you look at Hebrews Chapter 5 and verse 2, which I didn't read yet. Notice what it says here, that the high priest was to be tender and compassionate, where it says in Hebrews 5, 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also 
is beset with weaknesses. Now, when you're dealing with the ignorant and misguided all the time, it wears on you. Because you know what we begin to say is that the pers- that person don't deserve forgiveness. You know, get away from me. Not able to deal to the extent that God dealt with us in compassion. Because you know what, really, if it was up to me uh, and we were judges, there'd be a lot of people dead. Because we would say, get rid of them. And it, would maybe, it may have concluded us, but see, that's, what, that's why Jesus is described as compassionate. Because he can go to the extent of compassion that is needed to rescue the ignorant and the misguided and the unholy and the sinner. It's just like our missionary just gave us a letter, Jamie Winship, and I don't know if you read it, if you got the email, but it, it's one thing that he said interesting about it is this guy who came uh, and they were, went, they were he was in a, a service and they started speaking uh, with him and, and praying with him, uh, thought that God would never want someone as dirty as him. And, and this is the reason why, because early in his marriage, him and his wife decided to abort two children. And this guilt so laid on his heart all these years, he thought, why would God want such a dirty, guilty person like me. See, that's the great lie of Satan, is it not? You're you're too dirty and guilty to come to God. But that's the point. Jesus is compassionate to reach out to the dirty and the guilty and the person unable to help themselves and is even thinking wrong about what God, how God would deal with them. And instead of running away from the cross, run to the cross with all your guilt, with all your sin, with those two abortions, right, for forgiveness. See, that's why Jesus, come unto me, all you who labor and are heaven lady, and I will give you rest. Any man who comes unto me, that I'll not deny him. Why does the scripture say that? You know why? Because he is compassionate. Right? And will not compassion motivate somebody? Get someone's attention. I I speak a lot and preach a lot about the wrath of God. But it's the high priest who is to be the one who is compassionate. In fact, if you take this same message and you go to the New Testament, one thing that Jesus begins to bring out about the covenant-keeping God is that he is compassionate. Let me just throw some out to you. The compassion... uh, that Jesus had on a servant unable to pay a debt. Remember that one? In Matthew chapter 18 where it says, Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me, because you asked me to, and I had mercy on you. You could never pay this in a hundred million years, this debt you owed me. But I had compassion on you and I forgave you all the debt. So you... Should you not have also, he says, had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? See, the point is that a human being cannot have that kind of mercy. Somewhere down the line, we give it up. You can't hold to that. Also in Luke chapter 15, compassion on the son, unable to live any longer on his own, where it says, and he, he got up and came to his father, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's a a son who goes, takes his inheritance and squanders it. Spends it all on riotous living. And here's the compassion of the father. Seeing that his son comes to the end of his way, eating food that the pigs are eating, and finally comes home and his father sees him. And what does he do? Does he send out the guard to keep his son out? No, he runs towards his son with compassion. Because it says there in Scripture, he felt compassion. Why? Here's a son that came to the end of himself that was helpless and needed compassion. And that's what God is. That's what our high priest is. He is a compassionate high priest. And then in Matthew 3, where compassion on the wandering lost people unable to find their way, where it says, and he seeing the multitudes, he felt 
compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. See, that's what a person with compassion sees. He sees that the person is downcast, that he's helpless, that they're so under the distress of their life and the world and their own sin that there's no way they can untie themselves or unchain themselves or rescue themselves. They need something much greater, uh, compassion much greater than that. And where is that found? That is found in our high priest, Jesus Christ, who becomes a man and enters into humanity so he can understand exactly what we go through and beyond. So now, this really connects us with Jesus in a way that nothing else does. In fact, the same kind of mercy that God extends to us is the same kind of mercy that God wants us to extend to him in service to others. Remember in uh, Romans chapter 12, where it says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, right? According to what? By what? It says, by the mercies of God. That's how I'm to offer myself. So, see, the foundation of dedication is redemption because a person must be set free from the master of sin then to be free to dedicate their body for service, their life for service to Jesus Christ. Jesus has purchased us with his blood. He loosed us from our former master, whatever sin was mastering us, whatever sins were mastering us, so we can dedicate our lives to service. So the motivation of our dedication is the tender pities and compassion of God. So really, the bottom line is that why should I give myself to serve God? I'll tell you why. Because God was super merciful to me. And you know what? It's the only way to minister to people is to be merciful to them in their, in their great need they have and in how sin has really wrecked their lives and how much darkness and ignorance they have. That's how we approach people and serve people with our gifts. All right? We, we're motivated by the pities and compassion of God. That is a pity arising from the miserable state of one in need and unable to help themselves, that God's mercy is never condemning in Scripture. It's always overflowing with compassion. So the admonition in Romans 12 comes by God's compassions, which had pity on us in our sin, in our lostness, in our inability, and then brought us from our formal pitiful state to our present high blessed state in Christ Jesus. So Christ presented himself for our need, and in the name of these compassions, we are to present ourselves holy because of God's goodness and compassion. Lord, I want to serve you because you have been compassionate to me, and therefore I want to be compassionate to others like you are to me constantly. You can really serve God and people that way. And then you know what? Their troubles and sins and burdens aren't going to weigh you down. Because the motivation for you serving is really not to rescue them from their plight. You can't do that. The motivation is how God's compassion has been on you and how much that person needs God's compassion, and you bring it to them by the gospel. That's got to be the first thing. And the second thing in Hebrews chapter 2 it describes about Jesus is that he's faithful. All right? It says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So two aspects are important for Jesus to carry out his office of high priest. The first is that Jesus remained faithful to God in spite of temptation or suffering. He was faithful to the end without faltering like no other high priest was. And secondly, that Jesus remains faithful to his careful consideration of the concerns that he has for his children as they suffer and are tempted after conversion. See, not only as a man uh, did he 
have to take on a human nature, but uh, the first sympathy, but as a man, he offered himself as a sacrifice. And so that brings me to a second point, that the second practical sympathy of Christ is to satisfy all that pertains to man's relationship to God. In other words, to, sa- to satisfy God and everything that pertains to God. So the, the second purpose clause is found in the latter part of verse number 17 where it says this. It says, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, come on, let's face it, that the most fundamental function of a high priest was to make a sacrifice of atonement for the people. That was his main job. If he didn't do that, all would be lost. His office would be insignificant. If he did not do that. So here, Jesus becoming this human high priest, what does he do? He becomes, all right, in things pertaining to God, that everything that pertains to God on our behalf, he takes care of. And how does he do that here? To take our greatest need away. And what was that? What's that need? Is to satisfy or to propitiate the anger of God. See, in the exercise of his office, the high priest offers up sacrifices. That's his function. But Jesus himself is the sacrifice. He is the, the, at the same time, as I said last time, sacrificer and sacrificed. Therefore, he necessarily becomes the one who offers himself. And then, he is the propitiation for the sins of his people remember propitiation big word but it means something that is done in view of god that an offering is made to god that satisfies the demands of god's law and his justice when christ gave himself as a propitiatory sacrifice he satisfies what god requires because god requires the death penalty for sin and his justice demands that the life is poured out completely so that means god's wrath and justice toward me are satisfied for all those who put their faith in jesus christ their high priest because christ did not satisfy the demands of god for himself he did not have to but he What he does, he takes upon himself my sin and my guilt. And that's what the gospel is all about. So he becomes the one who offers himself as a sacrifice in behalf of his people to satisfy all the demands of God the Father. He does it all. He... So that means Christ's sacrifice then sets aside sin. It purifies the people who come to Christ. It delivers men and women from God's judgment. And then it averts the wrath of God. What else do you have to fear if that's taken care of? So he's the great high priest. He takes care of everything that pertains to our relationship with God. And so he gives us eternal help. That's what he does. He gives us eternal help. He secures and satisfies all the demands of God so our soul is safe forever in Christ Jesus. But there's a third practical sympathy of Christ in verse number 18. And that's simply this. That's simply this. That as a man he suffered and was tempted and passed the test. In other words, he came to help someone in need That's the third practical sympathy. He came to help. Notice what it says in in the passage. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Notice, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because Jesus sympathizes with humanity. It means that he literally feels with us. He, he literally feels with us and he understands 
what we go through in our sorrows and our sufferings in our temptations. So Hebrews is not just saying here that Jesus suffered through his temptations, but rather his suffering was the source of temptation in that he has been tested to the zenith, to the highest degree, a place that we could have never gone, that we could have never suffered to the extent that Christ suffered. In other words, Jesus got the full blow of temptation. There was nothing held back from him. You and I fall before it even gets too heavy, right? We give in. As soon as we, it gets a little bit too rough for us, we're giving in to temptation, left and right, right? And, and yet Jesus, what he does is that he bears it to the highest extent. He is tested to the zenith and remains faithful and therefore is perfectly qualified to help those who are tempted. So as the phrase is here, he is able, meaning that he is capable of all things that we bring to him concerning our the temptations we deal with it every every day in our life you know it's really hard for a person to uh who is physically fit to understand a person who is physically weary and tires easily you know they're going all the time you know and here's somebody who who would love to be like that but they can't because of who they are and they get tired quickly, and they're weary quickly. It's hard for a person who's really on the go to have compassion on a person like that or to understand what they're going through. Or it's hard for a pain-free person to understand someone who's never free of pain. Isn't it? Of course, when you get to a certain age, you start understanding people's pain because you start experiencing them yourselves. You know, and you begin to physically feel pains. There's emotional pains. There's all kinds of pains out there. But the thing is, is that I, I understand. I understand really more now what it means for someone to lose a parent than I ever did before. Because I went through it. I experienced it. I, I'm still experiencing the phases you go through. It, it's, it's weird. Uh, it's strange. It's, it's, I've never, it's never happened to me before. And so, therefore... I, I'm more in tuned and focused in on someone who actually loses a parent, what they go through, or someone who loses someone closer than a parent, a, a spouse. Man, it's a, it's a roller coaster. Uh, the things you go through to, to be able to sympathize with someone who uh, before you couldn't have sympathized, or even a person who picks things up and learns things easily and and finds it real difficult to understand a person who just doesn't seem to grasp things without great trouble. You know, some, a quick thinker, boom, 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 man, you can't get that? Why can't you get that? Get that! No, the person can't get it. Do you understand it? They can't get it. It's, it, it see, the thing is that it's, it's hard to come alongside somebody who you're, you're quick and... And your mind works fast, and their mind, man, it, it's in low gear, and yours is in high gear. See, it's very hard to be patient and compassionate to people like that. But you know what? The Lord is. A person who has never sorrowed can really never understand the pain at the heart of a person who's at their point of life's grief. So scripture is saying to us that Jesus can have sympathy because he has gone through the same things we have gone through and go through even to a great extent. He can help. He has met our sorrow. He has faced our temptations. And as a result, he knows exactly what help you need and he can give it. But do we believe that? See, that, that's the problem. With all our modern stuff going on, with all the medications out there, with all the doctors out there, with all the things going on, I can get my pain pretty much relieved in any way possible, right? Except God. I, I lean on this and I lean on that and I lean on all these other things and I don't really believe 
that the Lord can help me in my need and suffering right now in my temptation right now if I come to him. And it could be because of the lie we've been believing that somehow Christ doesn't understand my situation. Mine's so different and, and from anyone else's who, who, who ever lived that he couldn't possibly understand my situation and come to my aid and help me. And yet the scripture is saying completely the opposite. That because he became a man and he has dealt with your greatest need in becoming the sa- a sacrifice for you on your behalf to satisfy the Father that, and he has been tempted to the, the zenith extent that he can at any moment, at any time, give help to you when you ask. Now, Look at chapter 4 in verse number 15, what it says of Hebrews. Kind of wrapping things up on this. What it says. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That Jesus never gave in. That means, now some people say, well, that means that it wasn't real temptation. Hogwash. He never gave in. If he gave in, he'd be just like us. To the extent of failing. Right? No, he didn't give in. In other words, he resisted and won. And what does he win? He wins for us too. He wins over it all because of this. That Christ's personal experience of temptation suggests that this help includes strength for us to stand firm in the face of our own trials, in the face of our own temptations, in the face of our own difficulties, especially those that those temptations which will tempt us to be disloyal to God and give up our Christian profession. He's going to keep us. That's really in the flow of Hebrews where it's going. So, see, the things that maybe some of the Jewish Hebrews appalled, how can you have a dying, suffering Savior? How can that save anyone? That his suffering now becomes their benefit. Because he now goes through all of it and not as only, is not only to give them eternal help and rescue their soul, but can give them daily help and give them strength in time, greatest time of need. Why? Because he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he provides the help where it's needed. When you ask as his children, that's what he does. So he becomes very personal to you and I. So we're given the strength to persevere to the end. That's what the Lord does. So in saying all that, I would say that just the bottom line would be that Jesus Christ takes to himself a human nature, that he satisfied all that pertains to man's relationship to God and takes care of that, and he he comes to our aid in our daily life every single day because of who he is as this great, merciful, compassionate high priest. So, as a man, he suffered, was tempted, and passed the test. Now, who would not want to follow a Savior like that? Who would not want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ? when we begin to grapple with these principles and truths found right here in the Word of God. It gives us the motivation to live for Him, right? And also should give us the motivation to pray and seek God out when we're really under the gun and under pressure and suffering and really being tempted when no one else knows you are and come to Him with it and ask the Lord to strength to overcome it. And you know what? According to my scripture, it says he'll do it. Let's grow in our faith to believe that and practice that.
we have testimonies to tell people and say to people, you should, I want to tell you how the Lord delivered me from that sin. I want to tell you how the Lord delivered me from this. I want to tell you how the Lord delivered me from my sorrow and my suffering and my wrong thinking. And whatever it may be, I came to the Lord as my high priest and he answered me. Why? Because he understands exactly what I'm going through. And he can specifically supply to me the prescription that I need at that given time. Amen? That's what he does. We serve a great, great Savior. And I'm so thankful that the Hebrews lays it out like this. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you this morning for the great mercy that you have displayed to us even found here in Scripture, Lord, we wouldn't even know some of these things about you unless we read the Word of God. I'm so thankful it's right here, Lord. And I just ask you, Lord, that will you increase our faith? So, Lord, we are not puny, faithless believers, but that we're strong in Christ. And in the midst of severe persecution and temptation, and suffering and the sorrows of life, that we would run to you as our high priest, knowing, Lord, that you can sympathize with us because you became a man and you suffered to the greatest extent so we can be relieved. Thank you, Lord, you take care of our eternal needs and you also take care of our daily needs. I pray we'd practice it more often than we do. And I pray, Lord, that we would have bear more testimonies because we start practicing it more. Help us, every one of us here, to do it more. More praising you, less complaining. More praying and bringing our needs to you and less running to other places to somehow fulfill and help our needs when only you can help them. And I pray, Lord, that we would cast those things off, those worldly solutions, the advices of those who don't know you. And I pray, Lord, that we would come running to you with what's ever in our heart and that you would come to our aid. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your compassion. And so we praise you this morning. And we ask you, Lord, as we prepare for our Lord's table, that our hearts would be open and bare before you as we confess our sin as we, Lord, make things right in repentance and faith, and that we come to the Lord's table rejoicing in, again, the elements that represent you coming as a man in in the incarnation and your blood that was shed to satisfy the wrath of God to make us right with you. Thank you, Lord, that we're reminded constantly of things we so easily forget. And so, Lord, now as we take a few minutes, uh, help us to examine our own hearts and bring the things before you someone does not know you today lord who's been putting off a long time may this morning be the day they confess you as their lord and savior and for those who do know you lord i pray that we can constantly grow deeper in our commitment and faith that nothing nothing could move us off the path of living for you and serving you because our motivation to serve you is god's mercy and compassion thank you lord again for all that you'll do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.